For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is God's word. Thank you for reading. Uh, welcome, welcome one and all. Uh, lovely to, uh, to be able to be with you. And um, let's, uh, we've prayed in song, but let me pray. Let me lead us in prayer one more time as we begin together. Father, we've sung those magnificent words that uh, we were blind. But for those of us who are Christians, now we see because your spirit has given us life. And we pray that he would be at work amongst us now enabling us, strengthening us to fight, to fight this battle to change, to fight this battle against our sin so that we live lives which glorify you. We pray it again in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, expectations matter. They matter in many ways. They certainly matter in life. Because uh, if your expectations are way out of kilter with uh, reality, then you've got a problem. So uh, you're going on holiday. Now, if you're expecting five-star hotels, staff waiting on you, and you arrive at Prestatin Sands and it's a run-down <laughs> caravan, then you'll be disappointed. And you may indeed be uh, tempted to give up and uh, go home, if that's you. But, you know, you, you're way out of kilter. If you join the army and think, well, that'll be nice, I'll get to play lots of sports, and uh, i get good meals and well-fed, which is true, well, when the, uh, the sergeant major rings the alarm at 5am and then shouts at you for the next 14 hours, you might be a little bit disappointed with that, and think this is a little bit tougher uh, than I signed up for, and you might be tempted to quit and give up. I mean, that sort of thing. Or more realistically, um, well, you may join the army, it may be realistic for you. But even in the common, most common arena, I think of this, you marry. If you expect all will now be better than before, why are you being disappointed? Because uh, some things are great, some things are hard. There's undoubtedly trade-offs to be had there. But if you expect all will be better, that you've now got a need meter who will provide everything you're lacking, uh, you'll be disappointed and you'll be tempted to give up and quit. So expectations don't matter. That's a fairly obvious thing. Now here in the Christian life, as you come to Romans chapter 7, expectations matter. 
I don't, what do you expect of the Christian life, whether you're a Christian or not? Do you expect the, uh, as I sometimes put, certainly on the back of buses, the victorious life? Come along to this conference and experience the victorious life. And all is well, and uh, uh, become a Christian and understand this, and whoop, off you go, and nothing ever stands in your way again. Do you expect that? Because if you do, and that isn't what the Bible says is reality, you may be disappointed and give up. On the other hand, you don't want to just have the... Glum life. If you expect the glum life, well then you've got problems equally as well. So what are your expectations for normal Christian living? So important that those are, those are tuned, those are calibrated by God. Not by our own desires, not by bogus ones that perhaps we get fed, but that he tunes our thinking, our hearts. So we have the right expectations. And Romans chapters 5 to 8 are just magic for that. That's why we've been spending our time in these chapters. And uh, here we've been working our way through from Romans chapter 5. But here we get to the uh, the second half of chapter 7. And Paul is describing normal Christian living. Now we need to defend that statement, or I will, uh, as we go through. Not all would agree that that is what Paul is speaking about here. But uh, briefly, just look down. If you were here last week, we looked at uh, uh, chapter... 7 and verses 1 all the way through to 13. Undoubtedly chapters, excuse me, verses 7 to 13, Paul speaks personally, I, and he speaks in the past tense. I don't know, just uh, 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 picking up in the halfway through verse 7, I would not have known past tense what sin was. I would not have known what coveting was. But sin, seizing the opportunity, these are all past things, produced in me past tenses. Verse 9, once I was alive, but when commandment came, I died. All past tense, past tense, past tense. You get to verse 14, and all of a sudden he shifts. It's still personal, it's still him, but it's present tense. I am unspiritual. I do not understand. I want to do, I do not do, and on, you know, the do what to do what's, uh, you get at the beginning of the reading. Uh, don't read it quickly, you'll get in trouble. But you see, we, there's a shift here. I was like this, now I'm like this, undoubtedly. Now, we'll work through it. But, um, uh, what you've got here as he describes it is Paul saying, here is how I feel. This is what it feels like to be now being a Christian. And verse 15, do you know what? Sometimes it feels like, this is not the only part, it's not the only element of Christian living, but it really comes to obedience. Verse 15, do you know what? Sometimes I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I'm doing what I told you not to do. I'm trying to read it quickly and I'm getting it all terribly wrong. I agree that, you know, I don't do what I want. There's a mismatch, says Paul, between my desires, here's how I want to live, and actually what I'm doing in practice. Now, we all know that experience generally in life. Every sportsman knows that experience. The, uh, the batsman has his desire, and he sees the ball coming, and he desires to loft it off to the boundary, and he looks behind and thinks, oops, there's a mismatch between my desire and my actual accomplishment uh, accompli- of what I've accomplished. Or the tennis player thinks, here it is, oh, and I can see, and you're out of position, I'm going to pass you at the net. And uh, off the frame it goes and spins up into the air. Everyone knows there's there's a mismatch between our desires and what we actually accomplish. And Paul is just saying, morally, I know that. I can see what I want to do, and I haven't done it right. 
And that's my life, he says. What verses really, verses 14 to 16, he introduces the problem. Verses 17 to 20, he says, it's not me, it's sin. We'll get to that in a moment. But you see, the whole section is framed by the same argument. Verse 17, as it is, it's no longer I, myself, who do it, but it's sin living in me. Verse 20, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. We'll see those makes a distinction between himself and sin. We'll get to that. And verse 21 to 25, he concludes. But actually, the, the whole of this passage is him saying, I want to do this, but I can't do that. I want to do this, but I can't do that. I just I, You won't be able to read this all, but um, I tried to sort of separate it out. Uh, have we got that? You can't read that. But on the left-hand side, these are the positive things. Hey, I'm a Christian, and here's what I want to positively do. And on the right-hand side, but I don't do it. And you get through to the next next slide. It's all the same. Oh, I want to... Oh, but I don't. I want to... But I don't. There's this conflict raging throughout this passage. You can't, in one sense, divide the passage up very neatly. Because you're saying, I feel like this. I, I don't desire to follow the Lord, but I don't. And I've got a problem here. But, and yet I want to. That whole conflict rages throughout the entire passage. So look, for the sake of simplicity, I want to try and summarize the the teachings here in three statements. Okay, Uh, One, he delights in God's law. Two, he's divided in his desires. But three, he's confident in future rescue. So that's how we're going to work through it tonight. Okay, One, he delights in God's law. Two, he's divided in his desires. But three, he's confident, confident in future rescue. Okay, let's work through them. First, then, he delights in God's law. Now, many places, but verse 22 is, uh, in one sense, the, 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 the clearest verse on that. Verse 22, Paul can say, In my inner being, I delight in God's law. I love it. Uh, if you hear last week, we said last time that when someone becomes a Christian, there is a dramatic change. Before you're a Christian, you, you can read God's word, and God's law is external to you. It's out, you know, you can read it, you agree with some bits, disagree with other bits. When you become a Christian, it becomes internal to you. The Bible uses the language, God writes his law upon your heart. Not literally, that would be painful, but it's internalized. So Paul can say, now as a Christian, I love it. In my inner being, verse 22, I delight in God's law. You can't do that if you're not a Christian. Just look over the page, chapter 8, verse 7. We'll get there next week, but chapter 8, verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You, you don't love God's law unless, as we've sung a, a little while ago, God's Spirit has changed you internally, supernaturally, so that you do delight in it. This phrase of my inner being, wherever else Paul used it, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 16, Ephesians 3, verse 16, it's always of a believer. He's talking as a believer here. There's been a dramatic change. Before you're a Christian, there's always some things in the Bible. You can read the Bible and think, oh, I like that bit, I like that bit, and turn the other cheek, very sensible. Uh, there's some things, but there's always some point where you think, nah, no, 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 I'm not, I, I don't like that. And yet Paul said he's become a Christian. And now he reads God's word and says, this is a beautiful way of living. I see now in a way I just didn't see it before. Uh, Not many would know, but I am colorblind. 
uh, the medics tell me I'm 40% deficient in colour. Um, but uh, that's technically, I'm 40% colour deficient. And what that means is, uh, I, I'm just not going to see, th- you know, it's not that I think pink is orange or anything like that, but shades, I, I'm no good on shades. So if you ever ask me, what do you think of my dress, men, um, you got a problem. But if anyway, yeah, but, but my wife would say, what do you think of this? You say, well, you know, what do I know? Um, ask, ask our son, he's much better judge of such things than me. So I'm colour deficient. So someone knowing this, someone sent me the other day, this very lovely video. And uh, uh, somewhere in the States, they developed these uh, spectacles. That's an old-fashioned word. Glasses, that's the word. They developed these glasses. And um, for people who are colorblind, they put them on, and now all of a sudden they can see the full spectrum. And actually, it's, it's, um, for me, as, as a colour duffer, for me, it's, it actually was, it's quite a moving thing. Because all these, you know, three different people they have on this little video, about four minutes. And what do you colours do you see there? Well... Grey. And, um, okay. And they put on the spectacles. Oh, wow. Wow, that's, that's amazing. All of a sudden I can see there are seven different colours there. And someone sees a sunset. Well, oh, that's, that's alright, isn't it? Bright. And they put on the glasses. Well, this is what you see all the time. Yeah. Wow. Actually, it was very moving. And if anyone wants to buy me some glasses so I can see colour. <laughs> you know, they're in the sort of experimental a gazillion pound stage or something at the moment. Um, there's better things for money. Uh, but it was very moving. And in one sense, Paul says that's the experience when you become a Christian. You read God's law, God's word, and you think, well, you know, some bits are good, some bits, I don't know, you know it doesn't make much sense to me. And then all of a sudden, actually, this is... This is very wonderful. And God's way is a very beautiful way of living. And Paul said, yeah, that's right. Now I love the law. So he delights in God's law. Not quite as simple as that, that, of course. Don't want to remember a guy. He was uh, in the very early days of church here. Uh, I don't think anyone would remember him uh, or even would have known much about this at the time. But uh, there's a guy here... um, uh, sort of middle-aged professional guy, and he was an alcoholic. And uh, uh, he could really hit the booze. You know, he could take out 12 cans of lager and three bottles of wine in a night and keep going. He knew he drank. He really, really drank. And a few times he tried to quit, you know, went to AA and, you know, tried to earn and quite work. And it was killing him. I was ruining his life. I mean, he managed to hold down his job because he was a very talented, bright bloke. But still, he was making an increasing number of mistakes. And people were spotting the sort of inconsistencies. And I take it just liver-wise, it's killing him slowly. And he just couldn't bust out of this pattern. Uh, Then very wonderfully, he married. She knew most of the issue. Uh, But he married... And then he could change and live differently. And as far as I could observe it, there were two reasons for that. One, he he had new desires. Before, it's just me and my life, and if I trash it, well, people would be disappointed, but it's not such a big deal. All of a sudden, he's married, and I don't want to let her down. I don't want to be a rubbish husband. I want to to be a decent bloke for her. So new desires within him. But also, there's a new power. Because uh, he'd be there at home, and she'd be there at home. And he'd say, I fancy a drink. And she would say, oh, excuse me. 
<laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Forgot I was having another. This one's sensible. Um, there we go, that's safe. No, she say, no, you don't drink. We don't do that. If you ever found any drink, down the drain. If they went to someone's house where there was drink, put it away. So there's both a new affection I want to live for her, and once there's a new power, she's there. Was that it then? Never a drink past his lips again? No. Now every so often he'd fall off the wagon. Every so often he'd, you know, hit the booze hard. Oh, not regularly. Once, twice a year, perhaps. Commonly, of course, is when she was away and he was on his own and easy to get away with it. Of course, you start to learn, okay, when she's away, I'll go and stay with other people. And they can say to me, I won't do that. (laughs) Did he ever make a mistake? Oh, yeah. Never cracked it perfectly, but things were very, very different. New desire to live for her, new power. And Paul said that is true of the Christian. You become a Christian and your desires change. I want to live for Jesus now. I'm not just, it's not just me in my life. I want to live for him. I want to serve him. He's been so good to me. I want to live for him. And new power. God's spirit dwelling within you means you can change. Will you be perfect living the Christian life? I think if I did a straw poll, we know the answer to that one. No. But just because you're not perfect doesn't mean it's not different now. He delights in God's law. Let's move into that then. He delights in God's law, but secondly, he's divided in his desires. Let's look intensely at this section, verse 17 to 20. Let's say the same idea frames uh, the paragraph. Verse 17, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, don't think at this point, ah, oh, sin is like a monster that lives in Paul, be like alien. You know, the, uh, the, the monster comes in all of a sudden, boom, out it bursts uh, out of John Hurt. As, you know, if you've never seen it, oh, it's fabulously gory. Um, it's, not, it's not like cancer that is within a person, it is an invasion. It, when he says, it's not me, it's sin, he's just saying, I'm divided in my desires. My desires versus my sin. And you can tell that just from how he goes on. So verse 17 is I versus my sin. But verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. That's in my sinful nature. It's my sinful nature. But I cannot carry it out. Or clearest, I guess, verse of all is verse 19. What I do is not the good I want to do. No. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Who's doing the evil? I am, says Paul. So it's not that sin is an enemy which invades him, and oh, I'm being taken over, and I can't control myself. It's not that. All he's saying is, I I have schizophrenic desires. I want to serve God, and I want to do my own thing. I want to serve God, but I quite like my simple desires as well. Both. Both are there within him. Paul is saying, I'm split, I'm divided. I'm conflicted. Now there is a shift from before. Uh, Before, uh, we looked at this last time, but chapter 7, verse 5, before he can describe himself, before he becomes a Christian, as controlled by the sinful nature. 
But now, verse, uh, excuse me, back in our section, now chapter 7, verse 18, he's not controlled by the sinful nature. His sinful nature is there, but he also has good desires. Paul says, I became a Christian, I was controlled by my desires, my lusts, by whatever took me. Now God has invaded me. His spirit has invaded me, but hasn't conquered me. So I'm conflicted. Or uh, maybe this might be helpful. Uh, you could think of it this way. Uh, imagine uh, a house in which live two criminals. Here they are. Here's our house with two criminals. And um, uh, they look funnily alike, don't they? Uh, and uh, they, they, they're of like-minded characters. It's a house of robbers. They both love going out robbing and stealing and heisting. Is that ever I'm using that right? Can you use it as a participle? Let's just do it. Uh, heisting in Hatton Garden. Anyway, they love doing these sort of things. Then all of a sudden, Jesus buys their house. Jesus buys their house and says, I own the house now, and you can have jobs. You don't need to do your robbing and stealing and mugging anymore. I can give you jobs and you can go out and earn money. And so now when Jesus buys the house, one of them says, Oh, I'll go out and get a job. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is where you, this is, this is me again. This is what happens when I try to do my own things. But, um, you know, because obviously everyone who has a proper job is very grey and sensible like that. It's not meant to be that robbing is fun and having jobs is, is grey. Don't, don't, don't take that away. But now in the house, whereas before the two robbers got on very well and did all the same activities, all the same time, now they're divided. Now it's a bit awkward living in that house. Because one says, hey, but Jesus is great as a landlord. And serving him is great. He's changed. I don't, I can live a straight life now and it's great. I earn money and I don't get chased down the street with bags of swag behind me. It's great. Now, and the other one says, nah. And it's awkward. And there's tension in the house. And Paul says, that's the believer. Before you become a Christian, in one sense, you just do your own thing. Oh, your conscience might be pricked every now and again, but in one sense, you just do your own thing. You become a Christian, and you want to do your own thing, but you want to serve Jesus, and uh, there's tension now. It's awkward. The Spirit of Jesus, Paul says, has entered my life, but it's not completely taken over. There's still this lodger called sin. It makes a menace. It means I'm divided in what I want to do. He's divided in his desires. First 21 to 23, we get his conclusions uh, to so far. So, so then, and you need to understand, he uses the word law in, in slightly different senses, three different senses here. So verse 21, so I find this law at work, law in the sense of proverb or, or principle. I find this proverb to be the case. I find this principle. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. It's always there. I, I, I never escape it completely. Verse 22, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. Law in that sense, second sense, Torah. First five books of the Bible. God's word. I delight in that. But, verse 23, I see another law. Meaning another principle, another power, another force at work in my life. 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. There are these two powers at work within me now. God's power by his spirit and this sinful power, my sinful nature and just tension between the two of them. Don't get confused by his language. It's not when he's saying here that um, uh, verse 23, mind is good, body is bad. He's just saying, I'm divided. I'm divided in my desires. Okay. So first, he delights in God's law. Secondly, he's divided in his desires. He knows that tension. If you're a Christian, you know that tension. Thirdly, he's confident in future rescue. Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will rescue me? Future. And yet he has been rescued, he can say that. Uh, just look ahead to chapter 8 and verse 2. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. But here's just normal New Testament thinking. The Christian is one who is free from the penalty of sin. The power of sin has been broken. But the presence of sin, well, that'll be within everyone until resurrection morning. Until you wake again with God in his new heaven and new earth. And we live between that, rescued but still awaiting our full rescue. I don't know if anyone ever saw um, the Owen Wilson film, Behind Enemy Lines. He sort of gave up comedy for a bit and uh, tried action. And to be honest, it's a bit missable. But uh, in the behind enemy lines, uh, he tra- um, uh, said in 90, uh, well, early 90s, 92 to 95, somewhere else, he's in the Bosnian conflict, the breakup of Yugoslavia. He's a, a soldier, he's flying his plane, so he's an Air Force man, isn't he? Oh golly, I'm off, you know. He's a pilot. He's a pilot. <laughs> a pa- you don't drive planes like this, do you? <laughs> Not unless you want them to go like that. Okay, okay. He's a pilot uh, flying over Bosnia, and he uh, sees evidence of war graves and uh, crimes, atrocities committed. And he gets all the, the camera footage, and uh, uh, the Bosnian forces say, oh, oh, we don't like this, and shoot him out of the sky, and he's uh, shot down. Uh, and then he manages to kind of escape initially, but for most of the film, he's on the run. He's on the run, trying to escape the Bosnian forces who don't want him to get away with the evidence that they've committed uh, uh, atrocities. Uh, eventually, U.S. forces come in and uh, meet up with him. And he's safe. No longer on the run. Now he's got a platoon of Navy SEALs around him. He's safe. He's rescued. But they are still got to get out of the country. And so on their way out of the country, every so often they encounter... Uh, enemies who want them dead. So there'll be a little firefight, a little firefight, a little firefight, and then a bit of pause, and then another little firefight. And eventually, they make it into uh, international territory and are completely safe. That's a pretty weak story, but in one sense, he's rescued. He's rescued as soon as the soldiers surround him to defend him and protect him. But he's only really rescued when he's out of the country. And that's the Christian life. We're rescued. But there's still going to be scuffles, still going to fight sin, all the way, all the way until glory, till we're fully rescued with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul delights in God's law, he's divided in his desires, but he's confident, confident in a future rescue.
Three comments, three little, uh, I guess, applications uh, before we finish. The first is this. Uh, if you read this, don't expect perfection. This side of heaven, don't expect perfection. There will always be a gap between our desires and our performance. That's normal in Christian living. Every so often, uh, someone will arrive at church and they'll stick around for a little bit and they'll be here for a few months and then they'll start chatting and say, hey, do you know what, you, you, know, you people at Christchurch, you settle for too little. You can be holy, perfectly so, this side of heaven. Every so often someone comes and sort of says that. And what you do when they say that is you laugh. Because it's not true. It's not true. It was one of those apocryphal stories told of Charles Spurgeon. Someone came to him and said, oh, I haven't sinned for 17 years. And he threw a pint of beer over him. And oh, I was all that and raged back at him. Well, you've sinned now. Um, <laughs> whether it's true or not, no one knows. But never let that ruin a good story. The um, Look... Don't expect perfection this side of heaven. You'll be really disappointed. You'll give up if you expect it to be perfect. If you expect morally you can live perfect here and now, you won't. You'll always battle. Secondly, uh, do expect temptation. So verse 21 is a helpful verse, a helpful reminder. Verse 21, Paul could say, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Paul said that. He's a good Christian. You know, he's a pretty godly sort of Christian. And he can say, do you know what? I, there's, there's evil always there. I know temptation. So it's a foolish thing to ever say, if you're married, I'll never be unfaithful to my spouse. That's a foolish thing to say. A sensible thing to say is, I pray I'll never be. I never want to be. I hope I'll never be. But don't ever say, I'll never do it. Because you're underestimating the temptation of sin. You've got to be realistic. Don't ever say, oh, I've, um, oh, whatever your battles have been in the past. Oh, I used to have a problem with anger, but I've dealt with that. It's done. It's in the past. That's a foolish thing to say. Because sin's always there. Much wiser to say, I used to be a pretty angry person. God has changed me quite a lot. And I, you know, I, I pray for ongoing grace for him to help me with that. Whatever it may be in the past, the alcoholic, don't ever say, I was an alcoholic, but that's never going to be a problem for me in the future. That's a foolish thing. Because sin is always there. A friend of mine, I couldn't find the right thing, but a friend of mine, uh, I think he's a great illustration of this. He says, you know those um, uh, children's candles at a birthday party? You know the ones, they're um, uh, candles, the magic ones, and you blow them out. Hooray! And then two seconds later, they come on again. It's because there's magnesium in the wick that makes it, or something like, something like that. Is that right? It's, I, I, someone has told me, yeah, Richard Criddle says yes, and he's, he's very scientific. You know, uh, you, uh, you blow these candles out, oh, I've done it now, and then it, oops, then it comes back again. You blow it out, a few seconds later, it comes back, <laughs> comes back again. So they're like, sin's like that, oh, I've dealt with it. It's de- no, don't be foolish. It comes back again. Don't expect perfection, but do do expect temptation. We're in Christ, if you're a Christian. You're in Christ, you're united to him, but you're not in heaven. 
So don't be foolish now. Don't expect perfection. Don't ex- do expect uh, temptation. Uh, but third and last thing, never stop battling. Don't just give up and say, well, never be perfect, so what does it matter? We'll think more about this next week. Fight. Don't give up. Fight. Uh, next week I'll quote you a little bit. Uh, John Owen. John Owen, to my mind, the, uh, is an old preacher, Puritan preacher, but he's, he's terrific on this issue, uh, on uh, what it means to fight and battle your sin. Uh, more of him next week. But let me just give you this. He has a lovely illustration to my mind of um, sin is a bit like sometimes a lion. A bit like a lion. And if a, if a lion is uh, fed and just had its meal, you can walk past an adult male and he won't be bothered. You know, like most of the time they are at the zoo. You know, he sort of opens a lid and has a look. But, you know, if he's got food in his tummy, he's happy and goes to sleep. Many men are the same. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, you can walk past a big ferocious lion and it's fine if he's fed. But if you provoke him, if you stick a spear in him, I don't know why you use a spear in the 21st century, but anyway, if you provoke him, well, an injured lion, I don't know, we've got one, poor old injured lion there, they get angry. You walk past a lion and you give him a big old jab with a stick, he won't just open an eye. He'll have a little something to say to you. He'll defend himself. And John Owen say, well, you know, if you're a Christian, fighting sin's a bit like that. Actually, when you fight sin, it's a bit like that. If you, if you never bother, if you never seek to make progress in your Christian life, if you just leave your sin alone, it's fine. Actually, when you say, no, I'm going to change, I'm in a pattern of self-pity, I'm in a pattern of anger, I'm in a pattern of resentment, when you fight against that, all of a sudden, you, you, you are in a bit of a battle. It fights back, like the lion that you've just jabbed or, or, or punched or whatever, provoked. Yeah, it's hard. It's much harder to seek to change and battle your sin than it is just to walk on by and leave it alone. But fight. Fight. Make progress. Those are three little things then. Don't expect perfection. Do expect temptation. Never stop battling. What does the battle look like? Oh, we'll think about that next week. You've got to know, as Paul knows in this chapter... Jesus has died for the penalty of sin. Let me lead us in prayer. Great God and Father, we thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. You don't mislead us in what to expect now. You're very clear that for those who have become Christians, there are new desires, new desire to love you, to serve you, to please you, but those will always battle, will always be divided in our desires, this side of heaven. We thank you that won't always be the case, that one day we will be perfected by the Lord Jesus with him. But in the meantime, would we cry out to you, change us, Lord. Give us more grace, fresh grace to change you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.